0: privilege to come. So thank you so much to the worship team. Um, I think just flowing on from what El has said, isn't it so exciting that in the series, seeing Jesus that we're looking at now, we are discovering that the Jesus we dis- that's spoken about there is, a, is alive and well. He is alive and real. An encounter with him just changes our life forever. And I really trust that you are getting a lot of spiritual meat out of this Seeing Jesus series, where we are looking at the Gospel of John, and Roland and Brad that led us through the first chapter um, of John. And now on the next 11 chapters of this Gospel, we see there's a basic pattern to the stories that are, are going to be shared there. And Jesus will perform a miracle, or he makes some claim about himself, and at the end of the story, people are then forced to make a choice about who they think that Jesus is. And today we're going to be looking at uh, two stories that are found in chapter 2 of John. So if you've got your Bibles, you can open up there. Otherwise, you can follow along on the screens. And one story involves Jesus at a wedding and the miracle of him turning jugs of water into wine. And the other is the incident of the cleansing of the temple in Jerusalem. So let's begin by reading from John chapter 2, verse 1. On the third day, a wedding took place in Cana, in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, they have no more wine. Dear woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied, my time has not yet come. And his mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. And Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. And so they filled them to the brim. And then he told them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. And they did so. And the master of the banquet, he tasted the water that had been turned into wine. And he didn't realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. And then he called the bridegroom aside and said, Everyone brings out the choice wine first, and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink. But you have saved the best until now. This, the first of his miraculous signs, Jesus performed at Cana of Galilee. And he thus revealed his glory, and his disciples put their faith in him. Now the story of the wedding at Cana, it's found only in John's Gospel. And in this incident, we see Jesus, his disciples, and his mother, They guests at a wedding in the small town of Cana. So it is a very intimate and personal occasion that the story is, is found in. It's a time of joyous celebration between family and friends. And Jewish wedding ceremonies, or festivities, should I say, they were considerably longer than what we are familiar with ourselves, lasting at least a week with lots of feasting and celebration. That might be some of your best ideas and some of your worst. But you can imagine a time with a lot of food and a lot of wine being consumed. And one of the sacred duties of the bridegroom and his family at this wedding celebration was to provide ample refreshment for the guests. And for one to run out at a wedding celebration would have been an utter catastrophe in this context. And would have caused embarrassment and shame for the bridegroom and his families. Not just on that day, but in fact for years to come. And there's some literature that even suggests that, you know, you could have litigation against you for failing to, to do this. So it's taken very seriously. And so here we see, the, you know, there's the wine. Mary notices that the wine has run out and there appears to be no solution. And at this stage, the guests are totally unaware of, of anything amiss. And so she steps in here and she informs Jesus of the situation, clearly with the hope that he might do something. Now we know that Mary, as Jesus' mother, knows better than anyone of the miraculous circumstances surrounding his birth, also about John the Baptist's miraculous birth and his testimony as well, and his ministry in which he has identified Jesus as the promised Messiah. And so it's certainly possible that she expects Jesus to do something a little bit out of the ordinary here, not just pop down to the shop for more wine. And she's very careful not to tell Jesus what to do, but it seems that, it's, that she really hopes that he is going to do something. And so what do we see and learn about Jesus from this account that is so significant and important for us today? Well, the first thing that strikes me in this account is that Jesus is obedient to his heavenly father. Now, he knows his mother expects a response of some kind, and he gives her a response, but it's perhaps not what she's expecting. And he says, dear woman, why do you involve me? My time has not yet come. Now, at first glance, that might seem a rather abrupt response to one's mother, but actually in this space, it's actually not an unkind response to Mary. And it's very significant that we understand why he said this, especially in light of the fact that he actually does go on to perform a miracle. He calls her dear woman. It's the same term that Jesus will use when he addresses Mary, in fact, from the cross. And it is an expression that is a way of putting distance between two parties. And he also asks Mary the question, what does this have to do with me? Now, that is a Hebrew idiom that also implies a sense of disengagement. It is the phrase, which literally means, what to me, with and to you. In fact, the phrase is used five other times in the New Testament, and every time it's actually spoken by a demon to Jesus. And when Jesus sort of intrudes into their domain and starts to exert power, where they were in control, they say, what have you to do with us? son of God. And the gist of this phrase seems to be saying, I don't want you pressing in here. This is not your affair. And so Jesus is saying to his mother, this is not your place to be calling out my power. And in his response, both the words, dear woman, and this particular phrase that he uses, in his response, Jesus is here redefining his relationship with his mother. A new relationship between Jesus and Mary commences at this wedding in Cana. You know, as his mother, she might think that she has some parental authority over him. But as her sovereign God, she has no authority over him at all. And he's reminding her of the change in their roles and the change in their relationships. He's no longer her little boy who is obliged to do everything that she asks him to do. He is the Messiah. Who must obey his true father. And he, as God, cannot comply with her wishes if and when they are not in his time. And because of who he was, his physical relationships on earth could not control him. Jesus was absolutely bound to his father's will in heaven, and no one on earth. He was now going to act totally according to his father's timetable. And within the theology of John's gospel, John's gospel, there's no human being, not even his mother, who can determine Jesus' hour. That is the saving work that he's going to do to restore the relationship between humanity and God. And God alone will determine when and how Jesus' hour will become a reality in the world. Now, I am really personally challenged by this, um, because I really think it speaks to our own submission and obedience to Jesus as Lord. You know, he was fully obedient to his Father's will. And, and are we not, as his children, also called to that same level of obedience? We too approach our God as Father. We're taught to pray that his kingdom will come, that his will would be done here on earth as it is in heaven. And if we see and recognize and believe in Jesus as Lord over our lives, how is that decision daily impacting how we're actually living? And is there that same radical allegiance to God in our daily decisions, over and above any other physical relationships that we might have here on earth? Is God, not church, is God truly coming first in your life, over and above any family relationships that you may be in? The second thing we learn about Jesus here is that he is the ultimate purifier of our sins. Now, in verses 6 to 8, he tells the, the servants there to fill six stone jars um, with water and to bring a sample to the chief steward. Now, these jars were made of stone because stone was said to keep water um, free from impurities. And the water was, uh, from these stone jars was poured over the guests' hands as they arrived And it was an act of cleansing because it was an act of defilement to eat with unwashed hands. And so these jars represent the whole ritual of the Jewish law and the Old Covenant. And so there's a reason why Jesus chooses these water jars that were set aside specifically for purification, not for drinking, when he performs his miracle and fills them with wine. And the reason is that he means to point out to his own death, as the ultimate purification for sins that's going to nullify and replace all the Jewish purification systems. And so this miracle or this sign, it's a beautiful prophetic picture of how Jesus' own death, his shed blood, would be the final, ultimate, decisive purification for our sins. There's no more ritual that's needed anymore to be cleansed. There's only one way to be clean before God. And John says it plainly in Revelation 7.14, where he says, They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. The glory of Jesus is that he alone, once and for all, he made purification for our sins. We don't have to turn to ritual. We don't have to turn to religion. We just need to turn to Jesus. And the presence of Jesus, these purification jars there become meaningless. The ceremonial washing of the old covenant has now been replaced by the new wine of the kingdom. The third thing we learn there is that Jesus' kingdom is one of generosity and it's one of abundance. Now, the quantity that these jars tell, it's an important detail that's actually highlighted here in the story for us, as is the fact that the servants filled them up to the brim. So each jar, and remember there's six of them, Each jar could hold between 75 and 115 liters. And so that is a whole lot of water that in time becomes a whole lot of wine. And I'm struck here by the response also of the servants. You know, they're told by Mary to just do exactly what Jesus tells them to do. And you know they do. As far as we know, they immediately act on Jesus' instructions. We read of no hesitation, no words of protest, just this incredible faith and trust in Jesus' words. You know, they fill the jars to nearly overflowing with water. They draw out of these jars as they instructed to do and begin to serve, starting with the chief steward or head steward of the of the banquet. And we don't know at what stage this miracle actually happened. You know, was it when they actually filled the jars with water? Was it when they drew from the jars? Was it when they were walking to the chief steward? Was it only as he took that first sip? We don't know any of that. And so you can imagine the the suspense and in fact trauma for these poor servants in the time before that chief steward takes that first sip from that cup. Because it would have been sheer horror for them if what he did drink was actually just water. Possibly jobs on the line here as well. They don't know what's going on here. We can look back and see the whole picture of everything. They're just obeying instructions on the go, a minute at a time. They have no idea what's about to unfold before their eyes. And so they wait with suspense for him to take that first sip from the cup. And he doesn't know where this wine's come from either. He's just, you know, been served by this, this, um, the stewards. And upon drinking that first sip of wine, Shaw's face went into a great big grin, and he proclaims, this wine is actually great, best ever. You know, the bridegroom has just outdone himself, saving the best for last year. And so a situation that we know that could have been turned into a time of incredible shame for the bridegroom and his family actually turns around to be one of incredible praise and fame for the same bridegroom and his family, and for the head steward as well. And obviously, he just assumes that, you know, the bridegroom has provided this wine in a rather unorthodox fashion, keeping it to last. But only we know that the provision of this wine came from the true bridegroom who was there and present at the wedding. Jesus, the real bridegroom, is the one who was there, present. The one ushering into the world God's abundant goodness, his grace. And in the Old Testament, abundant wine, along with oil and milk, were all symbolic of God's presence in the world and signs of the age of fulfillment. And verse 11 tells us that the miracle at Cana is the first of Jesus' signs. For John, Jesus' miracle signs, Jesus' miracles, rather, there were signs that would reveal the salvation, the abundance, and the new life that was now present in the world through Jesus, revealing Jesus' glory as God's son through whom salvation would now enter the world. And the amount of wine, as I mentioned, that is produced here, it is extravagant. And this exaggerated amount, it's a beautiful picture for us, of the generosity and the abundance the kingdom of God is ushering in. Jesus didn't just create a small quantity. He produced much more than would be needed. And can you imagine the joy of this married couple, who may have been actually poor, given that the wine ran out in the first place, Actually now been left with some of the best wine ever after their wedding this sign it 's all about the abundant goodness and the grace that we receive in christ and i 'm sure if we could open up this floor this morning and give you opportunity to share your stories about god 's goodness and grace that 's exactly what we read here coming forth from all of your mouths in fact john sixteen John 1 verse 16 says, from the fullness of his grace, we have all received one blessing after another, one blessing after another. Jesus' kingdom, friends, it's one of generosity, it's one of abundance, and those who embrace him as Lord truly do get to experience that. In fact, John ten ten says, I have come that they may have life and that they may have it to the full. The end of this account says that through this miracle, he revealed his glory. The glory of God, yes, was revealed in this miracle, even though very few recognized it as such. Most of the people never even knew that a miracle had taken place. It seems that only Mary, the servants, and the disciples were aware of what had happened here. And John tells us that because of this miracle, the disciples, they put their faith in Jesus. It was a miracle that was performed privately, privately with no fanfare, but conformed exactly to God's timetable. And then we come to the temple incident. So if we go back to the scriptures there, reading from verse 12, it says, After this he went down to Capernaum with his mother and brothers and his disciples, and they stayed for a few days. And when it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple courts he found people selling cattle, sheep, and doves, and others sitting at tables exchanging money. So he made a whip out of cords and drove all of the temple area, both sheep and cattle. He scattered the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And to those who sold doves, he said, get out of here. How dare you turn my father's house into a market? And his disciples remembered that it is written, zeal for your house will consume me. The Jews then responded to him, What miraculous sign can you show us to prove your authority to do all this? And Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and I will raise it again in three days. And the Jews replied, It has taken 46 years to build this temple, and you are going to raise it in three days. But the temple he was spo- had spoken of was his body. And after he was raised from the dead, his disciples, they recalled what he had said. And then they believed the scripture and the words that Jesus had spoken. Now, while he was in Jerusalem at the Passover festival, many people saw the miraculous signs he was performing, and they believed in his name. But Jesus would not entrust himself to them, for he knew all men. He did not need man's testimony about man, for he knew what was in a man. Now, the scene for this setting, it's no longer an intimate family affair in a small town, But it is a national festival, the Jewish Passover, a gathering of God's people in the sacred city of Jerusalem, where they get to celebrate their deliverance from Egypt and their birth as a nation. And given that this account occurs just after Jesus' first miracle in Canaan, Galilee, and then we're told he goes to Capernaum for a few days and then on to Jerusalem, it seems probable that this account of the temple cleansing happens early in Jesus' ministry, and it is a different account to the temple cleansing that's recorded in the other Gospels. The second cleansing recorded in Matthew, Mark, and Luke occurred occur just after Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem. And they are all in the last week of his life. And so there are differences in the two events aside from there being nearly three years apart. And so the temple of our text now is the temple in Jerusalem. It's the third temple built by Herod. And construction of this temple had begun in 19 BC and as we see here for 46 years it had continued. and it was largely complete in the time of Jesus, but was fully completed a mere six years before it was just destroyed in 70 AD. And in his early infancy, Jesus was taken to the temple in Jerusalem for his purification. There both Simeon and Anna worshipped him as the promised Messiah. When he was 12 years old, we know he accompanied his parents to Jerusalem and again visited the temple. And it seems then that it was a place of worship and a place to study the word. But the temple, Jesus now finds nearly 20 years later, seems to have greatly changed. And that's the need for its cleansing. Now, every adult male within a 15-mile radius of Jerusalem was required by law to come to the Passover in Jerusalem. And the heart of the whole Passover was sacrifice, as we know. So it was necessary for worship at the temple to have cattle and sheep and doves that would be available for purchase for these sacrifices, for all of those who traveled from afar and couldn't possibly cart these animals with them. Also, every Jew over 19 years of age had to pay his annual temple um, temple tax of half a shekel, which was about two days' wages. And the gentile coins from from Rome, from Greece, from Egypt, they were considered too unclean for this sacred tax, so they had to be exchanged for a half a shekel. And the hidden cost of this exchange would also probably equal another day's wages. And then there'd be the cost for purchasing the sheep or the ox or the or the dove for the sacrifice. These had to be without blemish, and would have come from the temple flocks or the temple herds, and were also outrageously priced. So what was happening then was that a lot of money was being made for the temple coffers, and most of it actually, at the expense of the poor and the vulnerable. Now, in days gone by, people would have been able to purchase these animals and exchange their money in a place that was outside the temple courts, such as on the slopes of the Mount of Olives across the Kidron Valley. But at this time, they were in the temple courts, and most probably the outer court of the temple, which was called the court of the Gentiles. Now, the outer court of the temple, it was the only place where Gentiles were allowed to worship. They were not allowed to pass beyond a certain point. And so now we see this loud, competitive, market scene has been brought into a place that was meant to be a place of worship and a place of prayer. So what do we see and learn about Jesus from this account that is significant and important for us today? Well, we learn that Jesus shows righteous anger when the worship and the holiness of God is compromised. In John's account, this first temple cleansing, we see the focus is not on the way in which these merchants go about their business. That gets addressed later, but the whole focus on this account is where they are doing their business. The sacred place of worship has now been turned into a a noisy marketplace or a bazaar. And that business would have completely interfered with, and in fact, probably completely prevented any meaningful worship and prayer from happening in that place. The temple where heaven and earth were supposed to to come together and God would meet with his people had now become like this this market, this bazaar. And it was never going to foster any environment where communion could happen with with the Heavenly Father. And it was actions that were not flowing from a love of God. They were flowing from a love of money. And what made it worse was that religious ritual was being used as a cover for all of this greed and this exploitation that was happening. Now, sadly, I think we see that very much in our world today, where religion is used as a cover for greed and exploitation and often of the most vulnerable and the poor as well. And so Jesus, he takes a whip, a symbol of authority, a symbol of force, and he uses that to drive this entire operation of people and animals out of the area. And his accusation, get these out of here, because how dare you turn my father's house into a market. Now for someone to cleanse the temple and correct any wrongdoings that were found there implies that they had to have authority to be able to do so. And the Jews ask him now for a miraculous sign to prove just this. And Jesus answers them and he points to his crucifixion, his death, and his resurrection as the ultimate sign of his authority. John ten seventeen to 18 says, I lay down my life only to take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down on my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and authority to take it up again. And then, friends, lastly, we see that Jesus is the reality to which the temple points. Now that Jesus has come, the normal business of sacrifice, it's unnecessary. He breaks open just the whole reality of what worship is all about. There's no earthly building that's going to be needed now for heaven and earth to meet because something so much greater than the temple has come, and that is Jesus. He was the perfect sacrifice that accomplished what the temple in Jerusalem never could. And through Jesus' sacrifice and through his victory, he made a way for God to not only dwell with his people, but through the Holy Spirit now for God to dwell in his people. And it's only in retrospect to Jesus' resurrection that these puzzle pieces kind of finally fit together for the disciples, and they fully understand what he had been saying then. Jesus himself was the new temple where God was making himself present to man. So authentic worship didn't attach now to any one place, but it's attached to Jesus. And when we come into relationship as Jesus, as our Lord and Savior, we are filled with the Spirit, the Scripture says, and then we too become God's temple because of who we are now in Christ 1 Corinthians 3.16 says, Don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple and that God's Spirit lives in you? What an incredible privilege, but also responsibility that we now have as the body of Christ to lead others to Jesus the Messiah in worship. In fact, the whole purpose of this gospel as we read in chapter 20 is this so that you may come to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. The changing of the water into wine, the purifying of the temple, they give us such a rich understanding of the person and the work of Jesus Christ. That understanding is never meant to be just head knowledge for us. It has to lead to deep spiritual change in each one of our lives. After hearing these accounts, you need to make a choice about who you think Jesus is. Do you recognize him as the Messiah? And by believing, have you experienced life in his name? I want to close with a reminder of what we have seen about Jesus, along with a personal challenge attached to each of those points. So maybe just take a few minutes between each one as I read them. Number one, Jesus is obedient to his heavenly Father. And the prayerful reflection for you is, do you reflect this obedience in your own life? Jesus is the ultimate purifier. Have you trusted in Christ for your salvation and to purify you from all of your sins? Jesus' kingdom is one of generosity and one of abundance. Have you experienced this freedom and this fullness in your relationship with the Lord and through the ministry of His Holy Spirit in your life? And if you haven't, why not? Jesus shows righteous anger when the worship and the holiness of God is compromised. Have you compromised the worship of God in your own life? Or have you prevented others on the fringe from coming to faith and worshiping God through your unholy conduct? And then lastly, Jesus is the new temple. Have you met God through Jesus? Emmanuel, God with us? Or are you trusting in religion? or empty ritual for your salvation. I'm going to ask El to come join me on stage, and I'd like him to end our time together with just singing over us, singing a song over us as we ponder these very real questions. Before he does that, I want to end in a time of prayer, praying for you, but it's a prayer that comes from, in fact, a worship song. There's a worship song that's called New Wine, that Hillsong of out, and I want to just read you some of the words for that, and then I want to turn it around into a prayer that I invite you to say yes and amen to, if it resonates with you, as a point of response to the Lord at this time. In the context, too, where the prayer comes in, it says, in the crushing and in the pressing, God, you are making new wine, and the soil, I now surrender, because you are breaking new ground. And here's the prayer part of it. So make me your vessel. Make me an offering. Make me whatever you want me to be. God, I came here with nothing, but all you have given me. Jesus, won't you bring new wine out of me? Because where there's new wine, there's new power, there is new freedom, and the kingdom is here. I lay down my old flames to carry your new fire today. So won't you close your eyes? I invite you to make that your prayer. Lord, we come before you, choosing to submit to you as our Lord and Savior. To say your will, not our will be done. God, we so desire to live lives of fullness that really do reflect all of your life in us. We don't want to be relying on empty rituals uh, or religion to save us. Father, it's purely through a relationship with you as the living Lord that we come alive spiritually. And so, God, make me your vessel. Make me an offering. Mm. Make me whatever you want me to be. God, I came here with nothing but all that you have given me. Jesus, won't you bring new wine out of me? Amen. Thanks so much, Shelley. If you pray that prayer... um